Well, good morning. It really is a privilege to get to be with you and to share the Word of God. And I tell you, just to uh, hear that song about being available, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And to get to hear my dad and sister sing a duet like that, Dad, you still got it. And Beverly as well. They had asked me if I wanted to uh, join them, and uh, I declined, and I think we're all happy that I did decline. <laughs> They're the ones that didn't that uh, have a lot more of the musical talent in our family. But uh, it is a lot of fun to get to come and talk to you about Elisha House. It is a ministry of 32 Baptist churches up in our part of Oklahoma. Five and a half counties around Enid is where our churches are spread out. And I work as director of missions, or now it's called mission strategist for that area. And our area is called Cherokee Strip Baptist Association. Before I moved to Oklahoma, I didn't have any idea what Cherokee Strip was. In our area, we don't necessarily work with Cherokees, though we're open to that. We don't work with strippers. That's not our main ministry, though we're open to that as well. <laughs> it refers to a land area in that part of Oklahoma where the, the last great land run occurred. And so... That's what we're about, is a group of churches working together. And what's really neat is that First Baptist Norman, through Call to Serve, has joined us in partnering in our ministries there, and particularly with Elisha House. So a special word of thanks to Ron and Randy and Beverly and Call to Serve for coming and helping us get to the point where we are with Elisha House. We truly consider you all partners in the gospel because that's what it's all about in a ministry like that we want to share the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel with folks that we minister to now let me give you a little bit of background about how we got this house what you saw in the pictures there looks a lot better than we first bought it in 2016 in 2016 this house was a foreclosure and we got it for a very good price in part because it was trashed and nobody wanted to live there. It's right across from the Department of Corrections in uh, Enid. And so you have people in orange jumpsuits right across the street. <laughs> and so it was a hard marketing job for realtors to be able to sell the house. So we were able to get it. And at first we thought we were going to use this house to minister to our community through a pregnancy resource center. But the Enid City Council, in developing their zoning rules, decided we would have to make it a commercial zone and it wouldn't work for a pregnancy resource center. That needed to go somewhere else. So we did start a pregnancy resource center. It moved to a different part of town that could be zoned commercial. And we weren't sure what we were going to do with the house. But about that time, we started hearing about people coming into Enid for medical needs and not having anywhere to stay. Enid has two regional medical hospitals, and people from as far north as, as uh, the Kansas border and over to Woodward come into Enid for medical purposes. And I found out about a couple who lived in Woodward, and the husband was undergoing cancer treatment at one of our hospitals. He and his wife would come over. His wife couldn't drive. After his treatment, he was so worn out he couldn't drive back to Woodward, so they'd always have to get somebody to drive him back. And that was once or twice a week, an hour and a half drive, and it was wearing him out. 
I heard also about someone who lives up in Cherokee that was having to come down to Enid for treatment every week. And again, she was so worn out, she couldn't drive back. She would just uh, stay in a hotel in Enid. And I've heard of many other situations like that where people need lodging in Enid when they come there for medical purposes. So we developed this idea of let's kind of make a Ronald McDonald house to serve people who come into town that have medical needs. And as we began trying to get the house ready for that, we had a couple, a member of one of the churches up in the northern part of our area that began working on it. And they moved it along pretty well. The husband was the general contractor. The wife did the painting work. But then a couple of summers ago, the husband passed away in his sleep. After that, our management team kind of took over the project. And then the head of our management team that was working on this project, he passed away. And it seemed like we just weren't going to be able to get anywhere with this house. And then we had a team called Campers on Mission. They used to be the Baptist builders. They came and worked with us, but they were only able to work for a week. And we still didn't have the house ready. And that's when Beverly and I started talking. And she came up with this idea, what about called to serve coming to work up there? And you guys came and helped us get this house to the point where now we're furnishing it. And we have a team of about eight people working to develop guidelines for the use of the house and setting it up to start ministering to folks from all around that part of Oklahoma. So thank you, uh, Called to Serve and First Baptist, for being a part of seeing the Elisha house come to fruition. Now I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the name Elisha house. It's not Elijah house, it's Elisha house. And so we're going to look in the Bible at what, what and why we came up with this name. But before we do, I'd like for us to take a moment and pray, just asking God to open our eyes to understand the truths that are there. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, and as we read from your word and seek to understand the truths that are there, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would understand, and not only understand with our heads, but, and not only hear your word, but it would make a difference in how we live, that you would speak to us in a powerful way, that we would walk away this morning transformed through your word, that you would speak to each of our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of Elisha is found primarily in 2 Kings, and we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to start reading there in verse 8 and go until verse 37. And this is the story behind the name Elisha House. 2 Kings 4, verse 8 through 37. And I don't know if you've heard this story before. Tune in. It's one of the most gripping and touching stories in all of the Word of God. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So, whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. And then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day, 
when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. Shunammite's the name of a person from Shunem. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. In other words, thanks, but no thanks. I'm fine just as I am. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out, probably so that no one else would know what had happened. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the serpent, servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath, and that's when most people would go to visit the prophets. It's all right, she said. In other words, in Hebrew, she would have said, Shalom, peace, things are okay. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right. Or shalom, she literally said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came, to push, came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her, he meaning Elisha. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response from the boy. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And as he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and 
walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son and went out. An amazing story, isn't it? Very touching. And you may have noticed, I emphasize three times the word, or the words, one day. One day. That was repeated in verse 8, verse 11, and then verse 18. One day. In one day, things can turn in our lives from bad to worse, or from bad to really good and better. Think about some of the famous figures we're in football season. Think about the guy who led Alabama to beat uh, Georgia. Uh, he came off the bench to Tagalova. I can barely say his name, the man from Hawaii, who was on cloud nine as quarterback for Alabama. And then uh, he's prepared to go pro, and he breaks his hip. He goes through rehab, and one day he's well, he gets drafted into the NFL, and now he's with the Miami Dolphins, one of their quarterbacks. Or one day in my own life, my first wife Carol and I are celebrating the 4th of July where we served as missionaries in Moscow, Russia. The very next day we find out she had breast cancer and it had come back. And frantically we were packing our bags to get back to the States. One day, my wife now, Lucinda, and her first husband, Sean, were leading a thriving youth ministry. And then one day, they found out he had leukemia, terminal leukemia that eventually took his life. One day, you're taking food over to somebody in need who's lost a loved one. The next day, they're bringing the food to you. One day, you're desperate and in need of someone to talk to. One day, you're the one that somebody else is talking to. It's amazing how things can change in one day. And I'd like for us, as we go back through this passage, to focus on the one day parts and what happens in one day. And as we talk about these, I'm going to make my point as God working behind the scenes. The actors are all human, but it is God causing these things to happen. One day... God prompts a woman in Shunem to serve. Verse 8. She is called to serve. The woman in Shunem. You see, we're not sure exactly why Elisha would be in, in Shunem, but most scholars think that Shunem was about halfway between where he lived and Mount Carmel, which was a place where prophets and holy men would gather. And perhaps he would just stop there to rest on his way. Well, the woman of Shunem saw this and took initiative to invite him to come and eat with her and her husband. And on that one day that she did that, everything started to change. One day. Then we find that he's eating with them enough on his way to Mount Carmel probably that she convinces her husband to build this small room, kind of a guest room, for Elisha up on the upper floor of their house. In those days, there was, 
It was common for people to spend a lot of time on their roof, and so they built a little room up there for him, a guest room. Makes me think of when I was first beginning in ministry. I lived down in Missouri City right by Houston with my folks and was doing a youth minister job during the summer in Galena Park, Texas, right by the ship channel. It was about an hour's drive from our house, and I would go over Sunday morning to work at First Baptist Galena Park with the youth, and then the afternoon I would stay at the home of an elderly couple that was a member of that church. They had a special room for me. I'd take a nap, and then they'd feed me a pimento cheese sandwich before church that evening. That was a guest house for me. And she, that lady and her husband showed me hospitality, just like the Shunammite woman and her husband showed hospitality to the man of God, Elisha. And it's interesting, when you look at what she did, she exhibited the true heart of a servant. And that's what we want to do with Elisha House up in Enid. We want to serve people with the love and compassion of Christ. And oftentimes you find that though we feel like we have to convince people with theological arguments to become a believer, often people are more open to coming to Christ when they see the love of a true servant who's giving of themselves to serve someone else's needs. And we see this in the life of the Shunammite woman. First, she takes initiative to meet a need. Think about it. Elisha didn't come to her and say, hey, can I come and eat at your house? She found he had a need and she took initiative to meet it. A lot of times in our lives, we know there are people around us that have needs and we're just kind of waiting for them to come and say, can, can you help me? Instead, when we see a need, what if we were to take initiative? to reach out? Is there someone in your life that needs you to take that risk to take initiative and meet their need? Another way that she shows us what a true servant is all about, she's willing to meet the need no matter what the cost. Now it does say that she was a well-to-do woman. In other translations it says she was a great woman. She had some means, but still there's a cost involved in building this little room and serving meals. She didn't count that cost. How often are we willing to serve people if it means just giving them some money or giving them something that will kind of make them go away when in fact what they really need is going to cost us in time and energy. A true servant is willing to give what people need regardless of the cost. And she doesn't seek a reward or recognition for what she does. A third trait of a, a servant. A real servant is not going to look around and see who's watching them or who's going to give them an affirmation. The test of being a servant is are you willing to do that ministry or that service to another person if only God sees it and nobody else and you never get acknowledged for what you've done. Well, that all happens in one day when things turn because this woman chose to serve the needs of a prophet and her life changed. One day, if you look in verse 11, God promises this woman a son. Now I know it was Elisha, but only God could work the miracle that occurred here. You see, this woman and her husband apparently were childless and maybe had resigned themselves that they weren't going to have any kids. But here it is, Elisha being aware of this finds out through his servant that that could be a need, 
and says, you're going to have a child this time next year. And sure enough, on schedule, she has a baby boy. She gives birth to a baby boy in fulfillment of God's promise through his prophet Elisha. Characteristics of God's promises, they often meet our deepest needs. This woman, when Elisha talks about this promise that you're going to have a son, she's like, no, no, don't, don't tease me. But you can tell that's something that she would long to have. And in that culture, having somebody, having offspring, having a son to carry on the family name, and also having somebody, if you get widowed, to take care of you was very important. God's promises often are above and beyond what's expected. We don't think this woman expected anything in return. And yet here she's giving a, given a son by the prophet. And God's promises can bring joy to our life. I would encourage you each morning, take some time to think about what God has done in your life. Maybe promises he's fulfilled or something you can thank him for. And it's been said that if you will think of three things every morning at the beginning of your day, it will absolutely change your perspective for the rest of the day. You'll have a sense of joy knowing how good God is to you. But a, a third day, take a look in the text here, verse 18. One day, God proves his power. You see, this little boy grows up to a point where he can go out in the fields. And one day, his dad and the reapers are out there bringing in the harvest. And the boy suddenly complains of a terrible headache. And the, the dad says to one of his servants, take the boy into his mom. And you can imagine, even if you don't have kids, how worried this mother would have been to have a boy with this terrible headache. He's on her lap. Um, we have a son, Caleb, who played football. And my wife and I, watching him play football, would kind of wince every time he would carry the ball and basically collide with another player, worrying that he was going to hurt his head. Usually it's the other guy that got hurt, but still, it's something that as a parent you would be really worried about. And then, the, the little boy in this story, terribly enough, actually dies on his mother's lap. And then without telling anybody what has happened, she lifts his lifeless body and gingerly places it upstairs on the prophet's bed and closes the door. Again, probably so that no one would find out, so that she could go as quickly as she could to the prophet Elisha. And she knew where to find him. He was on Mount Carmel. And it talks about her getting a donkey and a servant and going as fast as she could to find Elisha. And the servant comes out. Gehazi wants to know if everything's okay. She doesn't want to waste time with him. She says, oh, it's well. Instead, she wants to go right to the prophet. And when she comes to him, she just pours out this angst, this frustration, this sadness, this overwhelming grief. Here I had this incredible baby, this gift from God that was a promise. And yet, one day he died on my lap. One day I have all this joy, newborn child, and then one day he dies. How could you do this to me? And the prophet doesn't try to correct her. Instead, he sends Gehazi as quickly as he can to go lay his staff on the boy face in that upper room and it's as though Elisha wanted 
the woman to go with the servant. But you can tell probably she had some women's intuition not to trust Gehazi. She clung to Elisha and insisted that he go. And they both went. And then we don't know if this all happened in one day or not. The text doesn't make it clear. It was about a 20-mile distance. Now, if you're going really fast on a donkey, you can cover that twice in a day, but the donkey may just collapse at the end of it. I don't know. I've never tried it. But regardless, when the prophet and the woman gets there to the house, the prophet Elisha goes up into the room, closes the door, prays that God would bring about life again in this body that is dead. And as you heard me read in the text, he does kind of a full body mouth-to-mouth, hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye resuscitation the first time. It doesn't work except the body gets warm. He walks around, paces a bit, probably continues to pray. Then he comes back. And you remember what happened? The boy sneezes seven times, opens his eyes, and amazingly, he's alive. And they call the woman. And the last time she was in that room, remember she left her little boy his lifeless body dead on the bed. But here, she goes out carrying him alive and well. Incredible miracle. You can see again why we like the name Elisha House for this place up in Enid because we want it not only to be a place where people can stay, but where they'll experience healing and restoration as God's people minister to them and share the love of Christ with them. And you know, one day soon, in large part because of what you all have done through Call to Serve, we're hoping to do just that and see this kind of ministry to folks in need. So what do we learn about God from, from this story? Well, we learn that He hears our prayers. For one thing, He heard Elisha's prayer. It was God who brought that little boy back to life as Elisha prayed fervently that He would. I want to ask you, Is prayer such a part of your life that it's the first impulse when you don't know what to do? Or do you go to Google first? Do you go to Google or God when you're not sure what to do? In our society, that's become an issue. God wants us to depend on Him. He responds to our prayers. And He cares deeply for the needy and hurting. This prophet Elisha, you don't find him chiding the woman and you find him up close to the crushed and the brokenhearted that reflects the heart of God. And finally, He is all-powerful, even over death. You see, man has tamed all kinds of aspects of nature, but no one has the power to overcome death but God Himself. And because of that, death isn't a calamity for a Christian. Now, as we close, you might be surprised to find that there are some others in the Bible like Elisha and actually his predecessor Elijah as well as some people in the New Testament who were able to bring people back to life with God's help. Of course, Jesus brought back to life Lazarus and uh, a boy, uh, the son of the widow of Nain. But there's an incredible difference between those resuscitations and what Jesus does in a person's life when they cross from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You see, those people were able to bring physical healing, but all of those people who were brought back to life, even the boy in this story, eventually died. Their healing was temporary in a sense. But when a person experiences spiritual healing 
And they're brought back from dead to life in a spiritual sense that is eternal. That lasts forever. And what does that mean for, for those who put their trust in Christ? It means your sins are forever forgiven. In the Bible it says clearly in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It's like this. Imagine in our lives we have this barrier between us and God. This is us. God is up here and in between is our sin. When Jesus came and died on the cross, Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, He took the sin on His shoulders. He paid for our sin and freed us up to have a relationship with God. He forgave our sin by bearing it Himself. Through what He did on the cross, a way was paved for us to have life eternal. And Jesus at a later point said, I am the resurrection and the life. In Him, you can have life eternal. One day, we're going to close with this, God will judge each one of us. The Bible lays it out very clearly. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And right after John 3.16 in the Bible, there's a verse we don't hear about very often. It says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. We think God came just to judge the earth in sending Jesus to condemn us, but instead He came to save us. And He loves us so much, He died on the cross and rose again that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. Now, I want to ask you this morning as we close, are you ready for that one day when God will judge you? When you stand before God, will you be able to say, I put my trust in this Jesus who died on the cross to pay for my sins and rose again that I could have eternal life? Or will you face eternity still bearing the weight of your sin and face an eternity separated from God forever? If you've never trusted Jesus, don't put it off any longer. Don't wait until that one day. Make it today that you say yes to Him and experience all that He has for you and being forgiven of your sin, having eternal life that doesn't just begin when you die, but begins the moment you believe and put your trust in Him. Life with purpose and meaning and joy and life standing on promises that will never fail. That's what He offers you this morning. If there's anyone here this morning that's never put their trust in Christ, I would invite you after the service to come and Brother Wade would be glad to share with you how you can come to Christ or I'd be glad to talk to you as well. If you're watching online, get in touch with our church through email or by calling in. There are counselors that would be glad to talk to you about how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. Would you please stand and let's close in prayer.